Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 113, Carolingian Decline. The first two episodes of our end-of-the-century tour were spent in the East, which, as you know, has been the primary military front for the entire course of our story. Charlemagne's extraordinary career didn't change that reality for the Byzantines, but it certainly made the Franks relevant to Roman concerns in a way they never had been before. In today's episode, we travel west to catch up on developments within the Carolingian world and review the ways in which they impacted on our narrative. Then we will discuss the dissolution of the Carolingian Empire, which, as the title of our episode suggests, went a similar way to the Abbasid Caliphate. The last time we were in the West was back in episode 82, as a new Roman emperor was crowned. Charlemagne's list of conquests seemed to demand nothing less than the highest honour available. And even if Pope Leo claimed to have the power to anoint him, no one was in doubt about where real temporal power resided. Up in Aachen, Charlemagne was in charge, and the nobles of Western Europe all knelt before him. As we saw in the narrative, even the Byzantines were forced to accept this new title. Michael Ragave sent ambassadors to hail Charles as emperor. To accept the existence of another Vasilevs was a historic moment. But the men from Constantinople would only go so far. An emperor of the Franks was fine, but no one else could claim to be emperor of the Romans. The Romans were, after all, the people who lived in the Byzantine Empire. They had never stopped being Romans. The Franks were still barbarians learning how to become fully civilized men. And they were doing a decent job, but they will never be Romans. Charlemagne died in 814 and passed control of his realm to his only surviving son, Louis the Pious. 
But Louis was to be the last man to rule the so-called Carolingian Empire. So-called because, as we discussed back in episode 81, the Frankish realm was not an empire in the same way that the Byzantine and Abbasid states were, the two most important differences being tax and inheritance. There was no formal system of taxation in the West. Instead, the Frankish king handed out lands, titles, offices, counties, abbacies and bishoprics as a means of patronage. At the most basic level, he would give his senior military supporters land. They would then have peasants work it so that they could focus on being soldiers. Below that, clergy, administrators and nobles of all kinds would manoeuvre to win the king's friendship. Or at least the friendship of men he trusted in order to further their own position. This system worked fine when Charlemagne's mighty personality was dominating the stage, but it did encourage men and women to constantly be alert to opportunities to undermine rivals and drain power away from the centre and toward their regional base. The opposite of the centrally planned system of taxation, which kept all pockets pointing to Constantinople. And of course, we just sat through the undignified spectacle of Leo VI marrying four times, trampling over sacred law to do so, in order to make sure that his son would inherit the throne. Whereas in the Frankish world, the tradition of dividing inheritance equally between legitimate sons was a constant source of division. The Carolingians were lucky that the line of succession passed from Charles Martel to Pippin to Charlemagne, to Louis. Once Louis had raised three healthy sons, the system began to break down. Louis was keen to preserve the empire as one united realm, so he devised a system whereby his eldest son would inherit the throne, while the younger ones consoled themselves with small regions where they would effectively be governors. This was seen as unjust by many who felt it was only right that sons receive an even inheritance, as had always been the Frankish way. Louis's progeny tried to overthrow him twice in the 830s, and though he survived, upon his death in 840, civil war broke out and the realm was officially split into three. A tripartite division didn't change the basic fact of Carolingian dominance across Western Europe. But over the next 50 years, as Byzantium began to recover, the Frankish realm pulled itself apart. Politics essentially returned to the state it had been back in the 7th century. Each of Louis's sons had more sons. In the 870s, there were eight legitimate male men of Carolingian blood, all of them either king or waiting to become one. Young sons had to be given their own statelet to govern, both to train them, but also to keep them away from one another. Wars broke out and pieces of territory were exchanged. Nobles and bishops had to constantly maintain good relations with multiple royal courts to avoid losing everything when the next shake-up took place. During Charlemagne's time, wealthy men had owned lands and titles across the empire. 
Like the senators of old, they could have interests in multiple regions. But during the 9th century, the multiplication of royal claimants made these holdings impractical. If you lived in, say, Brittany, in northwest France, but held land and titles in Italy or Bavaria, then your portfolio was extremely vulnerable to confiscation. You see, a lot of these offices and bishoprics and other perks were not given to you to own, they were awarded to you for the time being. They could thus be taken away with the click of a finger. Thus, a new prince in Italy or Bavaria was quite likely to confiscate your estates in order to court his local elites. What does he care about your support when you're so far away? The obvious solution for the nobles of Brittany was to seek out only rewards in northwest France. This regionalization of power and politics naturally led toward a division of the Frankish realm itself. The grandsons and great-grandsons of Charlemagne continued to assume that the realm, though divided between them, was still one kingdom. But a series of revolts and dynastic changes from the 880s onwards would see things change for good. Going into detail would not be a great use of our time, but increasingly the West Frankish Kingdom, based in France, and the East Frankish Kingdom, based in Germany, would become separate states, as would the Kingdom of Italy. In between these three, smaller independent fiefdoms would emerge, Provence, Burgundy, Bohemia, Brittany, and soon Normandy would all gain degrees of independence. None of this is a big surprise if you look at how Frankish politics has worked over the last 500 years, but the new division was not likely to be torn apart as the old one had been by Charlemagne's father and grandfather. Rather like the Caliphate, the Carolingian realm had grown too big. It wasn't easy for one state to control territory across such a wide area. This was also the beginning of the age of castle building. Regional lords began to entrench their power in stone, and there were too many regional centres for one king to dominate them all. No new Charlemagne would appear any time soon to reunite the realm of the Franks. However, Charlemagne's achievements had changed the nature of the relationship between Byzantium and their western neighbour. Before Charles crushed the Lombards and Avars, there was very little need for Byzantium and the Franks to interact. But those two victories brought the Westerners far closer to the Roman doorstep. And this led to three important changes which we should consider. Competition, cooperation, and identity. Up until Charlemagne, the only Western power that the Romans really had to worry about were the Lombards. But the sudden expansion of Frankish power made the two great Christian states rivals for territory and prestige. We saw this competition in action as we began our narrative back in 802 AD. The two sides actually went to war over Venice 
and its surrounding territories. Part of the peace deal was that Charles's new title of emperor was to be acknowledged. At the other end of the century, tensions flared up again when the Bulgar Khan Boris announced his intention to convert to Christianity. This will, of course, be the subject of its own episode, but the division of the Christian world into papal and patriarchal churches gave the Byzantines a new headache. In part, the Bulgar desire to convert was a result of the growth of Frankish power. Boris could see that sandwiched between two giant Christian states, his people would be viewed as expendable heathens. Whereas if he converted, both courts would wish to gain influence over the new church and thus have to negotiate with him as an equal. This competition over the conversion of new Eastern European peoples had only just begun. So from the point of view of Constantinople, the growth of Frankish power meant they now needed to pay close attention to nations they had previously been happy to ignore. However, the appearance of a powerful Christian state in the Western Mediterranean also offered opportunities for cooperation. Again, our narrative is replete with examples For a start, the Byzantines began to see the Franks as potential dynastic partners. Irene had asked if Charlemagne would marry his daughter to her son, then went one better in flirting with the idea of marrying him herself. Several other emperors toyed with the idea of foreign marriages for their offspring, most recently Leo VI, who gave serious consideration to the idea that his daughter Anna might marry a Carolingian prince. Gaining the support of the Franks in this way became a pressing concern after the fall of Sicily and Crete to Arab forces. Suddenly the Aegean and the waters around Italy were vulnerable to raids. Theophilus was pushing hard for a military alliance when he died. Basil would bring this to fruition when he sent forces into Italy in the 870s. Mutual distrust prevented serious cooperation between ground forces, but both sides succeeded in pushing Arab raiders off the peninsula. Finally, I think the issue of identity will affect the narrative the most going forward. Before Charlemagne, the Franks showed deference toward the Byzantines, Roman titles and luxuries were valued, ecumenical councils were respected, and Byzantine interests in Italy were largely accepted. Charlemagne changed it all. He was seen as God's chosen leader on earth. He rescued the Pope, he presided over church councils, he converted barbarians, he did everything a Roman emperor would. Feelings of inferiority in the West to the real Romans in Constantinople had disappeared. One of the great legacies of Charlemagne's reign was to give the Franks confidence in the worth of their own civilization. No longer would they need to defer to anyone. They had their own mission. They fought the Muslims and pagans in person and created their own orthodoxy in communion with the Pope.
the perception of where the Carolingians stood in comparison to Byzantium was, of course, an elite-level concern. To the common people, the Byzantines barely registered. However, this new sense of Western European identity definitely did trickle down and create a new culture, which was recognisable across hundreds of miles of territory. Not since the Western Roman Empire had collapsed had the people of the area shared so much in common. The Byzantine response to these changes seemed to confirm to the Franks that they were right. Not only did Michael Ragave concede the title of emperor, but Michael of Amorium then wrote to the Franks to justify his own usurpation. He hoped to get them to support iconoclasm, which he thought would help legitimize both that doctrine and his own rule. The fact that the Franks were able to reject this offer and formulate their own position put the Byzantines and the papacy on notice about Frankish self-confidence. This change of self-perception would be crucial down the road when we come to the Crusades. But in the meantime, it meant that the Byzantines had to deal with the Franks as equals, whether they viewed them as such or not. Their western neighbours were not afraid to tread on their toes anymore, and further opportunities for conflict and cooperation were inevitable. The man caught in the middle of this great power sibling rivalry was, of course, the Pope. As you know, the papacy had slipped from Byzantine control in the middle of the 8th century. It seemed that they might become Frankish puppets as Charlemagne's power grew, but that never came to be. The popes managed to maintain their independence by forging alliances with all of their neighbouring states, including the remaining Lombard principalities, independent cities like Naples and Amalfi, and even the Byzantines. The popes swallowed their objections to the Bulgarian church being allied with Constantinople because they needed the Byzantine fleet to stave off Arab pirates. The devolution of Carolingian power suited Rome just fine. The king of the northern Italian territories, when our narrative came to rest, was Berenger I. His reign was beset with revolts from his nobles and invasions from other powers. Though its territory was currently vulnerable, the religious position of Rome remained strong. No outside force was currently threatening to dictate ecclesiastical policy. However, despite various pontiffs making nice with the Byzantines, this obscured some serious disagreements. I know religious disputes aren't every listener's favourite part of the show, but in terms of the split between East and West, this century saw some more crucial tears appear. As you may recall, the patriarch Photius was at the centre of these disputes, The issue that concerned us most was the tug-of-war over the Bulgarian church, but that was essentially settled at this point. More damaging in the long term was Photius' discovery that the Western church had added a phrase to the Nicene Creed. 
that statement of faith which laid out what the church believed about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. You may remember way back at the start of the podcast when the Monophysites tampered with the wording of the liturgy, blood was spilt on the floor of the Hagia Sophia. I won't go into the details of the filioque controversy today. It's more important for now that you understand the practical fallout. Photius tried to have Nicholas I removed from office, but the patriarch's suspicious elevation to his own chair, uh, you may remember he was fast-tracked by Michael III, gave the Pope the ammunition to fire back. Photius was sacked and exiled by a church council, but when Basil murdered Michael, he recalled Photius and eventually put him back on the patriarchal throne. This in itself could have caused a major church schism. After all, the Byzantines were recalling a man that an ecumenical council had anathemized. But Sicily had just fallen to Arab forces, and raiders were pillaging right up to Rome itself. The new pope, John VIII, realized he needed the Byzantine navy. So he went along with the restoration of Photius and accepted that that council, which had deposed him, was no longer official. And as I mentioned at the time, the papacy would eventually change their mind about this. They would reject the council which restored Photius and only accept the previous one which had dismissed him. None of this was apparent in 912 AD, but what it meant was that the papacy broke from the accepted list of ecumenical councils, essentially ending the bonds which held the old Roman church together. The councils were, after all, approved of by the patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, along with Constantinople and Rome. It was the five patriarchs together who were supposed to define Christian doctrine. Now, the popes were rejecting the Pentarchy, and the Byzantines strongly believed that the Latins had changed the most important statement of faith. The seeds had been sown for a full-blown split within the church to happen somewhere down the road. As the political situation changes over the next few centuries, these fault lines will become fully exposed. I appreciate that today's episode has contained very few specifics. No great battles were described, no great cities were founded. I barely touched on the names and faces of the great people who shaped this century in the West. But the breakdown of Carolingian politics was a very complicated and multifaceted thing. Even a brief overview would have seen me throwing names and dates at you that would have quickly been forgotten. It was more important, I think, to give you a sense of how fragmentation on this side of Byzantium was going to affect our narrative. Unlike the decline of the Abbasids, the fall of the Carolingians offers no immediate benefits to the Roman Empire. In a broad sense, it was probably a positive thing from the point of view of Constantinople. Their interests in Italy weren't going to be threatened anytime soon. But in the long run, the real impact the Carolingians had was in what they'd already achieved, and not what was lost when their dynasty disappeared. The West was growing in strength and influence. Its states were 
regaining the prosperity and power that they had known centuries ago as part of the Roman world. The effects of this won't be felt in Byzantium for a little while yet, but they're coming. Next week, we'll do something a little different and look at the connections and relationships which developed between the three great powers during the ninth century. It might seem like an odd collection of prisoner exchanges, trade missions and pilgrimages, but it should deepen our understanding of how the three realms interacted and perceived one another, as well as answering some of your end-of-the-century questions. <laughs>